now, why don't you grab your notes out of your handout, and you will see that we are launching a new series. It is a walkthrough of the book of Colossians, so this would be a great series to bring your Bible, you know, open it up. Uh, we'll kind of go verse by verse. Well, you can make notes in the margins, all that stuff. And then um, there is a theme, and the theme about this is that Jesus is over all things. Specifically today, we'll talk about how Jesus is over the darkness. Uh, but what I want to do is give you a little bit of the setting. So Colossae uh, was a fairly large city in Asia Minor, and there was a church there probably founded by a man named Epaphras. The Apostle Paul is the one who wrote this book. It's actually a letter that he writes to this church in Colossae, and Epaphras was with him in prison while he wrote it. So Paul was in prison, Epaphras comes, talks to him about his church, and then Paul writes this letter from prison. He had never physically been to the church in Colossae, uh, but I love that he, by the Holy Spirit's power, leaned in and mentored this gathering that he had never personally been to, because in so many ways, it's like he's mentoring us today, right? He's not been here physically, but he's mentoring us in that same way. There is a purpose for the book, and the purpose, you might want to write it down, is for doctrinal correctness, a phrase that is potentially as exciting as colonoscopy, but at times as necessary. And the reason why it was necessary is because there were, there were some heresy that was brewing in the Colossian fellowship, and we'll learn this as we go through the letter itself. For example, these are the five things. Number one, there was this worldly philosophy, this Hellenistic philosophy, which Paul refers to as hollow and deceptive. Number two, there was an emphasis on ritual, so on circumcision and diet and holy days. And this was like the creeping in of Judaism, right? And because that was always a tension in the first century church. How much of the Jewish law do we bring in to this followership of Jesus? Number three, there was this whole pantheon of supernatural powers, uh, petty and annoying gods that must be placated or worshipped. This was uh, paganism, or we might call mythology today. And then the, the fourth, there was a view that material things, the material world, even like our bodies themselves, were all evil. That, that spirit and thought was good, but material matter was bad. And this is what's called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was actually a form of heresy that was pretty rampant in the first century world. And lastly, all of these errors, uh, errors rather, were being taught as Christian doctrine by Christians themselves. And what this is, is the sort of the movement known as syncretistic movement. It's a synchronistic effort where uh, there's a blending of all of these different thoughts and streams into some kind of a, like a gloopy sort of, you know, uh, embrace of all of them. Now, I just want you to understand, kind of putting all these different things together into one thing, it's always going to make a mess. For example, maybe you've seen this meme. It says, use the force, Harry. Gandalf, not pictured Gandalf, right? Like, no, you guys aren't with me on that, Captain Picard? I, nobody, like, thinks it's funny that this is just, like, de destroying all kinds of beautiful things, right, to mash them all together? And that's the problem with the, when you do it with the Christian faith. When you, when you do it with the Christian faith, it's like you dethrone Jesus and you leave him behind. 
Some of you might remember the story in the Gospels when Mary and Joseph, they packed up Jesus and all these family members, huge caravan, and they went down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And when they got down to Jerusalem, they celebrated the Passover. It was a beautiful thing. And then they packed up the whole caravan, and they headed back north to Galilee. And as they were going, somewhere along the first day, they realized that they had left a teenage Jesus behind. And you could just imagine the kind of fear that went through Mary and Joseph. They realized Jesus wasn't with them. They're like, oh, my goodness, we lost God, you know. Like, it, it was this huge realization. And so they rushed back into Jerusalem. It actually takes them three days to find Jesus. Uh, when they do find him, they find him in the temple, and he's actually teaching, and people are amazed at his teaching. And so it's just that kind of interesting thing. The reason why I bring it up is because something similar to that seems to have happened at the church in Colossae. The journey started well, and they were all moving together. And then at some point, Epaphras says, hey, wait a minute, where's Jesus? And then somebody else says, oh, I didn't even know he was missing. And then a third person says, uh, does it even matter that much? And, and Epaphras is like, whoa, we've got to do something. Paul, I'm coming to prison. I want to talk to you. I want to learn from you. You've got to help us out here because we lost God. Right? You don't want to do that. And, and so that's what's important for you and I every once in a while to examine and re-examine the pillars of our faith, to make sure that we're not on this journey uh, thinking that we're following Jesus, but uh, we end up leaving him behind. So I actually really thank God for Paul. I thank God that he, he, uh, Paul was willing to, by the Spirit's leadership, um, really lean in and listen to Epaphras and invest uh, in what would be the most helpful instruction for this church in Colossae. And it is interesting how amazingly relevant this book is for our lives today. So let's just jump in. What, uh, what Paul's going to do is just show what I think is such good leadership as he, as he initially greets this group. He, he says this in verse 1. This letter's from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and from our brother Timothy. Many of you know Timothy and Paul were partners uh, in ministry for a long, long time. We are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae. So I want you to circle the phrase God's holy people. That's another word for the church. We're writing God's holy people in the city of Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. May God our Father give you grace and peace. So the thing I want to point out here is the letter that Paul is writing to the church. So you need to keep this in mind. It's interesting. He's not writing to an individual. He's writing to the church. Most of the New Testament is in the form of letters written to the church. Here's what I want you to notice, that there's no time in the early movement of Christianity where following Jesus was an individual enterprise. It was always connected to the local church. Never ever did it was in anybody's mind that you could actually be a follower of Jesus and not connected in the local church. Right? That was such a tantamount importance, and, 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 this is, and I, I bring this up because it needs to be important to us as well. 
And I know because I've been in this ministry thing long enough that, that there are times, you know, people just push back. No, pastor, I don't, I don't need to be connected to a local church. I'm actually connected to the universal family of believers, right? And that's true, and I'm not arguing that's true. But you do see that God in his wisdom had more for you in mind than that. You see, when, when you were born into this world, you were born into the universal family of humans, right? Like, that's true. But it's interesting that the universal family of humans won't change a diaper. It takes an actual mother or a father to do that. It takes actual people connected to you in a family for you to grow and to flourish and thrive in. That's God's plan. And the same thing is true spiritually. The idea that God has in mind for us is that we are connected in a loving family where we are loved and where we practice love. And so if you're filling in the blanks, this first one is that Jesus wants his children in a local church family. Now, there are two sort of ways that you can, uh, you know, experience church in a local family. One way is you can attend, you can be an attender, and the other way is you can be a member of a church. And the difference between attending a church and being a member of a church is found in the word commitment. That's the difference, right? The difference is this. Attenders are spectators, from the sidelines, members are in the game on the field. Attenders are consumers, members are contributors. Attenders just receive and members give. They are the ones who are invested in sweat equity. They're the ones who are concerned about the, the whole lifeblood of the church and about all of the different ministries of the church. And they're the ones who are committed to making sure that they shoulder the responsibility of the church because the church, by the way, we talk about this all the time, the church is not building, the church is not carpet, the church is not brick and mortar, the church is, say it with me, people. And so we are members of God's church committed together to one another. And the point is, God wants you to commit to membership in a local church because of what it says about your relationship with God and with his people. You see, God wants you to love real people, not ideal people. It's easy to love everybody, but it's the specific individuals that are annoying. And those are the ones that God calls us to love. And you can spend your entire life searching for the perfect church. But friends, you're not going to find it. Overlick is a great church. I, I, I mean this sincerely. I've been in ministry. I've been in several different churches. Overlick is a great church, but it is not a perfect church, and it never will be, not as long as I'm here. <laughs> no, no, and if you do find the perfect church, then by all means, don't join it because you will just screw it up, okay? This is not about perfection. It's actually about an understanding of our imperfection. That, that the, sort of the entryway into this follower Jesus stuff is that we recognize that we have sin in our lives and brokenness in our lives. And we need a savior. So yeah, we come together around our imperfections and we encourage and support one another along the journey. And that's why we need to be committed in a local church. And if you've been tracking with Overlake, and if this is a church that you feel comfortable at home in, then please, please take a step of membership. Don't remain an attender. 
But take that next step and become a member. We're just launching into our Rooted uh, classes. Just today is our first day, so there's a group meeting right now. And, and uh, we're so pleased we, we teach this class now in English and in Spanish. And, and this is our pathway to dynamic membership. This is the beginning of our spiritual formation pathway. And I really do encourage you, if you haven't jumped in, I really do encourage you to do so. So, the Christian life is a journey with Jesus to be lived arm-in-arm with our brothers and sisters in the context of church. And then Paul continues, verse 3. It says, We always pray for you and give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all God's people, which come from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. You've had this expectation ever since you first heard the truth, of the good news. You might want to underline the phrase confident hope reserved in heaven. It's reserved for you in heaven by God, prepared and waiting for the day when this journey on earth is over and Jesus welcomes us to himself. And the question I have for you today is what are you hoping forward to in heaven? What are you hoping forward to? It's kind of a fun game to play. We are talking about this with our um, creative team this week, and, and my friend Jenny was telling me that, that in heaven she hopes to ride giraffes, and I thought that was interesting. I'd never in my whole life had I thought, uh, but yeah, maybe that'd be nice, but weird to hold on. I don't know, but maybe in heaven, right? You know, who knows? I think, personally, my creative imagination kicks in, and I think that Jesus probably has some kind of a, uh, an experience that humans can have where we experience the glories of creation, and we get to experience what it's like to be an eagle soaring in the sky, or a cheetah running along a plane, or, or a dolphin leaping out of the water. Doesn't that sound awesome? I mean, honestly, my, my thought, is, you know, my, my dream, it's, it's probably better than yours. But then we've got all kinds of scripture that talks about, you know, yeah, we'll have glorified bodies, resurrected and redeemed and restored, and, and everything will be new, a new heaven and a new earth, and there'll be this beautiful reunion of our loved ones together, and of course, we'll be in the presence of the Lord himself, and so all these things, plus the Holy Spirit is, is with us and stirring our spiritual imaginations, and, and what we know is that it's going to be good probably far better than we can imagine it. And, and I just wonder why it is that we don't let this incredible hope we have in heaven be something that we think about very often. See, we don't, do we? We don't think about it very often. And, and I have some thoughts about that. I think, you know, I think we should. Because, listen, friends, we're going to spend infinitely more time on that side of the divide than we are on this side. And this life that we're in right now, it is a preparation, a preparation for eternity, a preparation for us to enjoy eternity with Jesus and with one another. So that's my, my first thought. And my second thought is I think God actually gives us glimpses, foretastes of heaven right now. You can think of moments that you've had just beautiful, selfless love with maybe your spouse or with your family members or your friends. You can think of moments you've had where you've just been so at peace or you've just experienced such incredible contentment or, or your heart's just filled with gratitude. And these things are like glimpses. They're foretastes. 
they're, they're these beautiful, almost, you know, drops or foreshadowings of what eternity with Jesus is going to be like. And the last thought is, you know, I, I was thinking this week, I, I don't have all that much time. I mean, who knows, right? We're not promised tomorrow. We don't know how much longer each of us have on this journey called life. But, but I'll tell you that if, like, statistics are anything near normal in my life, I've got roughly, like, 35-ish years or so to live this, this life on earth. And, and it, it's sort of depending on what I do with uh, bacon. You know, I, I, I get it. <laughs> By the way, bacon itself is a foretaste of heaven, you know, if... if if the Lord would let me put that suggestion in. Um, but, but here's the thing, like, we don't know how much longer we have, but it's really not that long when you think about it, and so it, it should propel us to use the time well. It should propel us to make sure that, that we're investing in eternity now, that we're actually loving well and serving well and giving well now. We, we want to become the kind of people who will really enjoy being in heaven with one another and with Jesus. And, and all this brings me to the next fill-in. Jesus wants his children living in hope in heaven. He wants us living in hope for heaven. This verse from Acts 13 says, When David, King David, had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. And, and I was singing, I want this verse to be true of me. I want to serve God's purpose in my generation, and then my life can be over. And I want this for you, too. I want you to serve God's purpose in your generation. Overlake, I want this to be true of us as a gathering, as a family, as a local church expression following Jesus, that we serve God's purpose well in our generation. Because it's all we got. That's all we can do. You know, I kind of think of it like um, the analogy is running a relay race. And each of us, we receive the baton of faith, and then we run with it for a season, and then we pass it on. We hand that baton of faith on, and then our leg of the journey is over. Certainly, that's true for me as the lead pastor here at Overlake, that I receive the the baton of leadership. And all I want to do is run my leg of the race well and then hand that baton of leadership off successfully so that my leg will be run and and that race will be complete for me. And friends, I want you to understand that this is what we can look forward to, this hope in heaven that we want to serve faithfully now. Then Paul continues in verse 6. He says, this same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. It is changing lives everywhere. Please circle that. Such an important concept. It's changing lives everywhere because the gospel is transformative. The gospel is generative. It it changes things. and It's changing lives everywhere. He says, just as it changed yours, that very first day you heard and understood the truth about God's great kindness to sinners. You might want to underline that phrase, God's great kindness to sinners. You see, he is greatly kind to sinners. God is so gracious and so loving, and it's his kindness that actually leads us to himself. And what is the tangible expression of God's kindness? It's Jesus himself. Jesus who's given for us. Jesus who's calling to us. Jesus who died on the cross for us. Verse 7. Epaphras, our much-loved co-worker, was the one who brought you the good news. He is Christ's faithful servant 
and he is helping us in your place. He's the one who told us about the great love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. So th this verse, it, it, Paul is affirming something that Epaphras, their pastor, is bragging about in a good way. He's saying this church, it might have some problems we have to sort out, but they have great love. They have great love for one another. They have great love for those in the church and for those out of the church. And Paul is affirming this because, friends, I want you to understand, that is the manifestation of people who know and follow Jesus, is that they actually have great love, great love for one another in the church, great love for those outside of the church. Remember that Jesus says, this is how people will know. This is how people will know that you are mine. He says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So Paul affirms their love. They got a lot of love, and that's a great, a great beginning point for Paul to begin coaching. Verse 9, he says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. See, Paul reckons that the, the cause of the problems in this church stem from lack of wisdom and understanding, and so that's his prayer for them. And one of the things I was saying to each one of us, we, we need to be humble and recognize, no matter where you are on the spiritual spectrum today, we need to be humble and recognize that there actually is more to learn and there actually is more to grow and there's actually distances to cross. Not a single one of us has made it or arrived. And so just like the church in Colossae, there are things to learn, friends, and there are things we might need to unlearn so that we can be sort of uh, understanding exactly where our theological foundations are. Okay, verse 10. We pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. And especially as you look at that verse, look at the verbs there. We, we want to please him. We want to bear fruit. We want to grow in the knowledge of God. See, what this means is that spiritual wisdom is for something. It's not just to build ourselves up intellectually. It's not just for our own sake. No, spiritual wisdom is actually for this other thing, for pleasing the Lord and bearing fruit and living a life worthy of Jesus Christ. Okay? And so the question I would ask you, and we've, we've talked about this before, is, is that true for you? Is that the trajectory that you are on right now? In other words, as you grow older and more mature in your faith, are you becoming more gracious? Are you becoming more kind? Are you becoming more loving, more generous, right? The, is there more of the fruit of the Holy Spirit evident in your life as you grow, or are you just getting older and meaner, right? It's for something. It's for this kind of a life. All right, Paul says in verse 11, we also pray that you will be strengthened with his glorious power so you'll have all the endurance and patience you need. May you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. So take a look at that verse. He's praying that they will be strengthened with God's glorious power so they'll have endurance and patience. You might want to circle the phrase glorious power. You see, Paul had a firsthand account of what it was like to be filled with God's power. God's spirit was evident in Paul's life. Paul lived a powerful life in the spirit of God. 
So he's, he's given a firsthand account of what it's like to live powerfully in the Lord. But I was thinking this week, you know, I, I get caught in this, and, and maybe you do too. We, we think that if we have God's power in our life, then we won't actually need endurance or patience. Because we have this little misconception, or at least I do from, from time to time. And I think to myself that what it means to receive God's power means that I will have a trouble-free life. But that's not it. It's never promised, not even once. In fact, just the opposite's promised. What having God's power in your life means is that you can overcome every trouble. Right? Every obstacle you can overcome, every trouble, every trial, every challenge, that, that having God's power in your life is having his power to be able to face whatever you do face with endurance, to be able to face whatever you do face with patience, to be able to overcome whatever it is that comes your way. And of course, when you look at Paul's life, you see all kinds of obstacles. You see all kinds of challenges. But he lived powerfully in the Lord, and he overcame. And so that's what, that what Paul's praying for the church in Colossae. That's what I pray for us over Lake. That's what I want us to be about. Colossians uh, 1.12, he has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. And here it is. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. This is powerful right here. This is like, we're getting to the good, good stuff here. He's saying, there is an inheritance for you that God has prepared, right? That's your confident hope in heaven. There's inheritance in the next life. There's this inheritance and power in this life. And then he says, this is what's happened. You have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness. And it's Jesus who's done this. It's Jesus who purchased your freedom. It's Jesus who's forgiven your sin. This, Jesus kicked open the doors of the kingdom of darkness and he gathered you up and he has brought you into his kingdom, the kingdom of light. And it's, and it's all a gift, right? It's all purchased and offered to us freely by Jesus. I remember once, this was many years ago now, but um, some beautiful soul had offered my wife and I a free 10-day pass to Microsoft's uh, Pro Club gym. Raise your hand if you're familiar with the Pro Club. Anybody know what that is? Yes, yeah, several hands. All right, so for those who don't, the, the, the Pro Club is a gym, and, and, and in some sense, it's, it's, it's just a gym. It's got all the Jimmy things that you would, oh, it's very Jimmy, right? It's, it's gym, gym, right? It's, but, but then on the other hand, it's just like gym filled with glory. It's like Shekinah gym, okay? It's just, it, it, it's just amazing. So we walk in there, and we're just wide-eyed, and it's like, oh, my goodness. They've got pools, you know, and, and, and many pools. They've got tennis courts and many tennis courts. And they've got all room for freeways and a room for all these machines. And, and then you go into the men's locker room, which was the only locker room I went into. And in the, in the men's locker room, they've got, you know, they've got toothpaste and mouthwash and razors, and they've got um, whirlpools and saunas and jacuzzis and steam rooms. And, I mean, and it all smelled wonderful. And, 
And it just was so, so great. And then you go into the lobby, and you can get like a, a fruit smoothie uh, there, and then you can also buy like high-end jewelry there. It was like the strangest thing ever. You could, I'll take a banana nut muffin and that diamond ring. Like it just was the craziest. And, and we loved it so much. And we knew that we didn't belong here, right? Like the only reason we were there was just a sheer gift offered to us, joyfully received. And I went there 10 days straight. I was there. I was there the whole time, right? Just absolutely loved it. And I want you to see that that's the gift of our, of our salvation. That's the gift of grace that Jesus has offered us. We, we did nothing to deserve it. And yet he says, I've got all of this for you. And I want to purchase all of it for you. The forgiveness of your sins and the cleansing of your souls. I'm going to kick open the doors of the kingdom of darkness. And I'm going to gather you and welcome you into the kingdom of light. This is his heart for us. You know, I, I, I just want you to understand that we don't do well in the dark. That humans, we're just not designed for it. It's been said that the human shin is a device in the dark used for locating coffee tables. And that's absolutely true, that we just, we don't do well. And the darkness that I'm talking about is not just the, the visual darkness, but the darkness of feeling lost, the darkness of feeling confused, the darkness of feeling without purpose or significance or not understanding what value is and and there is so much darkness in our culture, and I'm not trying to run it down. I'm I, I just recognizing that that's, that's the reality that we're in, and, and we can't make a home in the dark. In, in the winter of 2006, you might remember this, but in the winter of 2006, there was a really gnarly windstorm that swept through here. And I don't think I've ever sounded more old than I do right now to myself, just... You remember in 06 when that Northeasterner came through? So, so the power went out in our neighborhood, and it was out for seven days straight. And my family and I, we had just moved up, you know, a year and a half earlier from Southern California, where we would, you know, occasionally dip into the high 60s, right? Like, we were weather ignorant uh, as we're trying to make our way here in Washington, and and so the wind comes through and the power's out. And we, we thought it was fun. Like my kids, they, they thought it was hilarious for like a minute, you know. And, oh, look, you can see our breath inside our living room, you know. And, and we would all huddle together to sleep downstairs by the fire. And that was fun for a while. And the candles lit everywhere. And that was fun. And, and it lasted just a little bit of time. And then the candles burn out and my little candle lighter thing went out of fuel. And, and everybody started getting bored and complaining and miserable. And, and I just remember about four days into just the, kind of huddling and camping out during that, that week. Our friends invited us to come stay with them. It was our friends, the Julians. They're just a wonderful family. They live out in Monroe, which is like the beautiful place for, you know, zombie apocalypse. But it's... it's um, <laughs> They had electricity. And so, so I remember, you know, we packed up our family and we drove out to their place. And as we pulled into the driveway, I'll, I'll never forget this. They, they had kids that were the same age as my kids. And so as we pulled into the driveway, their kids just kind of run out of the front door and they welcome our kids and they, they uh, you know, bring them inside the house. But when the door opened, this light was streaming through. 
And I could see that the fire was just crackling sort of in the fireplace through the open door. And, and as I crossed the threshold into their home, I got emotional. It was so beautiful to be welcomed in by them. And I realized that the kingdom of darkness is no place to make a home. It's no place to make a home. And I want you to understand what Jesus is doing in all this. This is why Jesus is overall, because he, he's the hinge pin of all this. See, if you're filling in the blanks, Jesus is the one who welcomes us into his kingdom of life. And in Jesus, we have redemption. And in Jesus, we have forgiveness. In Jesus, we are literally made new. We are made clean. We are given righteousness. We are relieved of our stain. We are reprieved of our guilt. We are loved and washed and restored. And it is all because of Jesus, which is why Jesus is over all things. Amen. And we have an opportunity to come to Jesus right now. The Jesus who reigns over all, who rescues us. We have the opportunity to place our lives under his authority, to offer our families for his leadership, to bring our souls under his care. We have an opportunity to say yes to his gift of grace, to say yes to being set free from the kingdom of darkness and to have a new citizenship in his kingdom, the kingdom of light. And so what I want to do is I want to invite you to say yes to Jesus being over all today. And maybe you're here and you're kind of like me, that you've walked for many years with Jesus, that you trust him, you follow him, you have um, some of the phrases we use, we accept Christ. You might have heard that phrase. You've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if that's you, then today I think is a great opportunity for you to simply reaffirm your faith in him, for you to, to re recognize that it's Jesus at the center of all things for you, that it's Jesus on the throne of your life. And maybe you're here and you've never said yes to Jesus. You've never stepped across that line of faith and, and you've never just in your own heart said to him, Jesus, I want to receive that gift that pastor's talking about. I, I want to receive forgiveness. I want, I want to be a part of your kingdom of light and to be rescued from the kingdom of darkness and and if that's you, then all you need to do, just in your own heart, just kind of sincerely and humbly before the Lord, you simply say, Jesus, I want to say yes to you. I want to begin this journey following you, and I ask that you would be Jesus over all of my life. So why don't you just bow your heads and close your eyes, and let's pray together. And Lord Jesus, we do just want to recognize that you, you are over all that you do reign, that you do love us, that you have had us in your sights our whole lives, and you've been calling out to us because, Jesus, you are the only one who has gone to the cross. You're the only one who's died a criminal's death. Even though you were innocent, you died in the place of criminals. Even though you were sinless, you died in the stead of sinners. And you rose again from the grave with the same power that the Apostle Paul says is available for each one of us to live with. And so, Jesus, right now, for those who have followed you and trusted you and, and sought to bring our lives to you, we just want to say once more, 
we declare that you are over all things. Jesus, we declare that you are at the center of our lives. We make a reprioritization if we need to. And we readjust the things that we put our hands to and think about. And, and we place you at the very center and at the very top of what it is that we want to be about as your followers. We love you, Jesus. And we declare that you are king over all. And Jesus, I also want to give an opportunity for those who might be here unsure of where they stand with you. I want to give an opportunity for those who have never said yes to you or never stepped across that line of faith. And right now, just with the whisper of your love, Jesus, I pray that you would allow them in their hearts to say to you, yes, Jesus, I do believe. Yes, Jesus, I do trust you. Today, Jesus, I accept your gift of grace. And I declare for the first time that you are over all. And with your eyes closed and your heads bowed, if you prayed a prayer like that, would you just raise your hand? I want to see. Yeah, God bless you. Yeah, in the middle, God bless you. Anybody else? God bless you. I see you. Yeah, in the back, God bless you. God bless you guys. The scriptures tell us that there is an absolute party in heaven when hearts are softened and step across that line when we receive you, Jesus, as our Lord and Savior. And the reason why heaven throws a party is because eternities have changed. That we know eternities have changed because of what you have done in our lives. So, Jesus, we declare that you are king over all. We love you. We praise you. We want to honor you with all things. We pray this in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen.